Well, good morning and welcome this morning. Uh, We are so glad to be with you as we continue our series through the Gospel of John, a series that has been coming over and over again to this recurring theme of belief. Because John's concern is that we would not miss the reality of who Jesus is because there is life in his name. And so he wants us to experience life. And so he wants us to come to believe and to understand who all that Jesus is for us um, in and through this good news. And so um, our prayer is that through this, you're going to come to greater depths of belief and experience with him and thus find more and more life in him. And so this morning, we're going to be picking up in John chapter 7. Now, I got to warn you, I got 52 verses to get through this morning. 52. All right, so we're just going to read a small portion of our passage and, and allude to it throughout to make sure we can get through the whole passage this morning. And so we're actually going to just read for our purposes this morning, verses 37 to 39. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's one of the things that we do as an honor as we come to prepare our hearts to receive God's Word this morning. John chapter 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The word of our Lord, you may be seated. Let's pray together. Now, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would come, as it were, thirsty this morning, that we would come to you, come in belief for all that you are and all that you offer to us. And so, Lord, would you speak now, for we ask this in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you haven't noticed, um, we're a little bit divided as a nation. You know, we're divided over politics, pandemics, um, science, mask, and perhaps most concerning of all, we're divided over who makes the best chicken sandwich, which for every spirit-filled, discerning Christian should be evidently clear. You know what it is. And, and seriously, the reality of what's going on around us makes our head spin, doesn't it? And I have to admit, as I came to the passage this morning, I felt very similarly that these winds of confusion, misinformation, partisanship are swirling around Jesus. And at the center of this storm is this question, who is Jesus? And what Jesus tells us in sorts in this passage is this, is that we will not truly recognize Jesus until we truly recognize our need. It is through our neediness that we come to a fuller understanding of all that Jesus is and all that he offers to us. Without neediness, we won't see him for who and what he really is. And so my hope this morning as we come and look at some of the things that keep us from recognizing him and keep us from recognizing our neediness is it would expose something in us and that you and I would come face to face with the great needs and longings of our hearts, and to see what Jesus is clearly offering to you and to me this morning. Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time this morning, that you would come and drink of him, receive from him all that he wants for you in his abundant life. 
Now, this morning, we pick up in John chapter 7. And there's a few things we need to understand as we jump to this morning's text. First is that about six months have passed between the ending of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And so we're picking up the story around the end of September or the beginning of October. It's right on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was instituted by Moses back in Leviticus chapter 23. And the early Jewish historian Josephus tells us is that it was the most important and most celebratory of all of Israel's feasts. You see, there were three main pilgrimage feasts in the life of Israel. The first was Passover, the second was Pentecost, and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's provision and presence in the wilderness. And to really understand what's going on here, you have to understand that it is both looking back and looking ahead. It's looking back at God's provision in the wilderness wanderings, specifically thinking of the giving of water from the rock, providing them for their thirst. It also was uh, surrounding the harvest time. And so it was looking back at God's provision of rain over the past year, now culminating this great harvest that they were celebrating at this time. But it also looked forward. It looked forward in prayerful anticipation that God would bring rain, he would bring water again to provide another harvest in the coming year. And ultimately, it looked way in the distance to the coming messianic age in which the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the people. And so it came with great anticipation. It came with great significance. And the people would often cry out, Lord, save us, Lord, grant us success. Now, central in this festival was a tradition that arose that the, the families would come from all over Israel to Jerusalem, and they would build these sukkots, or booths. They were basically temporary structures made of palm branches and, and trees that the whole family would, would basically camp out for the week. And so you can imagine as a kid looking forward to this time when all the family and friends are in town and you get to camp out in the backyard all week long and have these special meals with all the abundance of food. I mean, it was like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the yearly family camp out all put together in one. And so you can understand the excitement that revolved around this holiday. Now, this sets the backdrop from everything that we read in chapter 7 to 9 and even the beginning of chapter 10. And so as we walk through these over the next few weeks, you're going to see allusions over and over again where Jesus is using this festival and its traditions and ceremonies to um, create opportunities to speak truth in the midst of this chaos. And so this morning we pick up as Jesus is meeting with his brothers in the city of Capernaum. Now, if you didn't know what was going on in his brother's hearts and you weren't acquainted with this thing called sarcasm, you probably wouldn't recognize what's going on in this conversation. You see, their words to Jesus are akin to the words of a family from a small podunk town who are frustrated with a sibling who's a dreamer. They want to make it big as a rock star. And they uh, go, and in the pursuit of their dreams, all they do is play the local dive bars. And so the family surrounds them, wanting them to end this foolishness. And so in a moment of frustration says, if you're really going to go after this, at least move to Nashville, move to Austin, move to New York or L.A., all in hopes that there they would discover that they didn't have what it takes and they would realize their folly and they would just get a real job. 
that they would step and fall into line. You see, the brothers don't believe Jesus. John tells us that in verse 5. They want this foolishness to be over. And so might as well just go and get it done. Now this should strike us as remarkable. I mean, these brothers had a front row seat to the totality of Jesus' life. They saw his perfection. They saw his sinlessness. They knew the stories. They had seen the wonders, and yet they did not believe. And we must ask the question, why? And I believe the answer is this, resentment. You see, it wasn't easy being a sibling of Jesus. First, you had the family stigma. Remember, um, Joseph and and Mary's account of how this birth came about was kind of far-fetched. No one believed them. They thought they were crazy and deceitful. And so there would have been a stigma around Jesus. In fact, it's referenced in John chapter 8 as the Pharisees say to Jesus, we know where our daddy is. Do you know where yours is? The stigma, this cloud covered over Jesus and their family throughout the years. The second reason is comparison. All right, how many of you have ever had a sibling who was um, far superior in academics or athletics? They were more popular, that they were like the big man or woman on campus, and you knew what it was like to live in their shadow. It's hard when you realize you can't live up to it. And so they would have this, this, this posture of comparison. I never live up to my older half-brother, Jesus. And you see, Jesus was perfect and sinless, and they and their parents were not. Now, now let's be honest, parents. That if you had a perfect child, some of you may think that, but you do not. Most of you are probably smart enough at this point to realize that that is nowhere near the case with your lovely little children. But this child was perfect, and it would have been very tempting in those moments where the other kids get out of line to say, why don't you guys be more like your big brother Jesus? Why can't you act like him? Well, there's a big problem why they can't act like him. They're not Jesus, right? I mean, I would be tempted to hand out WWJD bracelets to all of my kids. And that moment when they get a line, daddy just goes, mm-hmm, what would Jesus do, right? And so this would be hard, living in that shadow. And then you fast forward to Jesus' earthly ministry, and you begin to see that his life, his words, his wonders were bringing controversy, And their family had enough of that. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 3, you see that the family is so taken back and troubled by Jesus' words and actions that they go after him, trying to grab him and to take him away. In other words, they think he's crazy and they want to institutionalize him. It's remarkable to see how they could respond like this. Now, eventually, they will come to faith in Jesus. After the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, we read that even the brothers are there amongst his disciples, but at this moment, they are not. And why is that? Because of resentment. You see, resentment kept them from recognizing Jesus by faith, and it keeps us from recognizing him as well. You see, inevitably, we experience in life these moments when life doesn't go according to plan. We watch as seemingly bad things happen to quote-unquote good people. And we struggle with these realities. We become frustrated, we become angry, and we experience resentment. Now in those moments, God is using them that, that we would have to experience dependence, that we would turn toward him in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the chaos, in the struggle. 
But so what happens in their sinful hearts is we turn away from him in resentment. And you see, what you and I must understand, when we come to these moments where we're struggling with faith, we must ask ourselves, why am I really struggling? Am I really struggling because of the evidence? Or am I struggling because of my circumstance? Now, you've heard the story before from me of the um, former pastor who forsook his faith, his ministry, and his family when he was diagnosed with MS. He said, within 24 hours, I went from a MDiv ordained pastor to an utter unbeliever. And he said, it's because I saw the evidence. And the more we talked, I, I realized that, that, that it wasn't the evidence that was his issue. It was his circumstance. And the one day I pointed that out and he said, you may be right, but this is just where I'm at. And I would argue this morning that I want you, if you're in that place, to be honest with where you really are and why you're really there. Because only in the acknowledgement of that can you really begin to see, at least I know in this moment I'm biased. I know that there's something that's clouding my vision, something that's keeping me from seeing clearly, and that's what resentment will do. Both in your relation with God and your relationship with others. You see, you have a choice. When life doesn't go perfect, you will either lean to dependence or you will lean to resentment. The decision is yours. The second thing that can keep us from recognizing Jesus is fear. Now, we read in verses 11 to 13 that there is this confusion and discussion about who Jesus is. Some believe he's a good man. Others say, no, he's leading people astray. But we read in verse 13 this, that yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In other words, they weren't really willing to go deep with Jesus because they were afraid of what people thought. Guess what? Cancel culture is nothing new. We've just changed the terms. They were afraid of what people would think, and that if they got too serious about Jesus, if they were too convinced, it would have some, some negative implications for their life. And so they backed down. They grew quiet. It happens to us today as well. I mean, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you know if you get too explicit, too serious in your workplace, it can probably bring some negative connotations, some negative consequences. You, you know that, that, that if you're strung with faith and you live in a context with a lot of people who don't, that if I come to Jesus, this could create some, some problems in my life and in my relationships. And so for fear, you back down. For fear, you go silent. You see, it's your fear that can keep you from recognizing Jesus. Third is that familiarity can keep us from recognizing Jesus. Verse 27, we read, but we know where this man comes from. There is this confidence that they know this guy. They know all about him, and so he can't be who he says he is. You see, familiarity breeds contempt. There's a reason why a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. He's too close. You think you know him. And they thought he knew him. It was a problem for them. It's a problem especially here in the South. The land where there's churches on every corner and that Christianity is part of our vocabulary. And what often happens is that we thus assume that we know Jesus, that we know Christ, that we know Christianity because we've heard some things. We've experienced some things. And we act as if we are the expert on them. And what we must remind ourselves is that, 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 that there is a danger when we're far too familiar with someone when we don't really know who they are. 
that you may know all the basic Sunday school stories. You may be able to use the lingo, but the reality is, is you've never encountered the real Jesus. How can you tell? Well, when Jesus becomes a little mundane, a little ordinary, when you aren't marveling at him anymore, when you aren't taken back by the wonder of your relationship, when you aren't amazed by grace, what is showing you is that you have become far too familiar with a fake Jesus. Because the real one is non-ignorable. The real one will, will, will thrill the human soul, and you and I must come to grips with that reality. And so are you too familiar with your notion of Jesus, or have you experienced the real thing? Fourth, misinformation can keep us from recognizing Jesus. Now we find two evidence of this. We find lack of information and wrong information. Sound familiar? Ignorance and fake news, at once again, is nothing new. In verses 19 to 20, we find the lack of information. So Jesus is teaching, and he ends his teaching by saying, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd responds, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Well, for those of us who've been through the Gospel of John, we know back in chapter 5 that the Pharisees were already starting to plan and to plot how to kill Jesus. In fact, we'll read later in verses 25 to 26 that the crowd understands this as well. There's many in the crowd who say, why in the world is Jesus here? Doesn't he know that people are trying to kill him? You see, these individuals assume that they are in the know while not understanding they are utterly ignorant. They're basing their posture upon the lack of information. They don't understand what's really going on, but they think they do. You see, for, for many when it comes to Christianity, we have these, these assumptions, we have these ideas while never really investigating the thing. They didn't ask to see, is this true? They just assumed they knew the truth. And so the lack of information was blinding them, not only of who Jesus was, but also of their need for him. The other issue is the wrong information, both about prophecy and about the person of Jesus himself. See, verse 27 we read, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This was a common misconception in Jesus' day. They assumed that this messianic figure would be this anomaly. He would be this mysterious figure who would come out of nowhere. In fact, one of the early rabbis, Trypho, says that Jesus could not be the Messiah because the Messiah is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Jesus comes to, or until Elijah comes to anoint him and make him manifest to all. Now, nowhere is that in Scripture. That became some, some, some kind of like riff in rabbinical teaching that began to cloud their judgment, seeing that this was the actual prophecy. On the other end was misinformation about the person of Jesus. The crowd in 41 to 44 says, well, doesn't this man come from Galilee? I mean, we know that Messiah, he comes from Bethlehem, and he's a descendant of David. You see, they didn't have the whole picture. They have all the right information. Yeah, Jesus did come from Galilee, but he was born where? He was born in Bethlehem. His earthly father, David, of whom he would bear that mantle, came from the line of David. You see, they had the wrong information. They were clinking the licks Clicking the links on Facebook and, and considering that research. You see, a problem comes when you and I live in ignorance and are content with our ignorance or we go to the wrong places and the wrong sources. Misinformation will kill. That's why in verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances. 
Don't assume you know the truth, but judge with right judgment. Go to the right sources. Check to make sure. See, one individual who did this was the man Lee Strobel. Many of you may be familiar with his life and with this kind of seminal work, The Case for Christ. You see, he was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, and his wife had an experience where her life was being turned upside down by Jesus, and it was messing with his life. And so he began to use all of his investigative powers to go to ultimately disprove Christianity. Well, fortunately, he went to the right sources. And the more he actually investigated scholars who knew what they were saying, the more and more he found all of his hesitations and questions answered, and ultimately leading to his conviction that indeed Jesus was who he said he was, and he offers what he says he offers. You see, he judged with right judgment. And I encourage you that, that the implications of the identity of Jesus is so immense that you can't ignore it. You see, here's the reality. Many of us spend more time and more efforts researching that next home purchase, that next car, or the next trinket you're going to buy off of Amazon this next week than many of us do to with really considering the claims of Jesus Christ. You see, don't say there's not enough evidence when you've never looked at it. Don't act as if you know everything when you've never taken the time to study him for who he really is. Get right resources and be diligent in your pursuit. And fifth, pride can keep us from recognizing Jesus. You see, as our passage ends, you find the Pharisees confronting the officers for not, for not arresting Jesus. And when they explain that, there, that there's just something different about this man, they go, preposterous. Don't you know that we are the authorities? We're the ones who know the law. That crowd doesn't know the law. And when one in their midst seeks to, to speak up, they say, are you too a Galilean? You see, what is it doing? They're coming with a posture of pride. As we talked about a few weeks ago, is that Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. He was a threat to their identity. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their position. He was a threat to their very way of life. And because of the pride of their hearts, they couldn't let this threat go on. You see, they didn't want Jesus to mess with their status quo, and we don't want so either. I don't know how many individuals I've come in contact with who, if they're really honest, would say, the reason I don't want to really spend time considering Jesus is this. I'm set in my political persuasion, whether it's right or whether it's left. I don't want Jesus to mess, mess with my sexuality. I, I don't want him to undermine my sense of goodness. I'm a good person. That he stands as a threat because he exposes our need. We see ourselves as we really are. And so because of our pride, we don't really want to see what is ever before us. You see, we want to be in control, but Jesus says that is the very thing you cannot do. So if you look down to verses 14 to 17, that Jesus had been teaching and he is now coming to, to, to justify the source of his teaching. He says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now he's not saying that, that the only way that we're going to go forward is by obeying the law. What he is saying is this, if you want to be in control, you're never going to recognize who I am and what I'm offering to you. 
It's got to be about his will, not your own. In other words, you need to humble yourself. See your need. And he says, when you come with that posture, then you will see. You see, Christianity is best seen from the inside out. It is through the eyes of faith that we truly come to understand who Jesus is and all that he offers to us. Scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, in their weighing up of Jesus, many of them had settled it in their minds that there are certain things which they do not want God to be saying to them. And if Jesus says those things, then they will rule him out of consideration right away. You see, we want Jesus to be reduced to a subject to be studied or a doctrine to be discussed. Because then we are still in control. We want to be in the position of power, to be in the position to judge what is true and what is untrue. But until we relinquish that control, we won't see the truth. In fact, Jesus will say we can't see it. You see, we can't truly recognize Jesus until we truly recognize our need. Now, Jesus will then use a moment of holy hush to get this point across. You see, throughout this Feast of Tabernacles, every day they participated in what was called the water ceremony. You see, in the water ceremony, the priests would go and they would grab a golden pitcher and they would make their way down to the Pool of Siloam. And they would fill that pitcher up as the peoples around them would sing and recite the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And the priest would make his way back to the altar, and what he would do is that he would take this and he would pour it on the rocks underneath the altar, reminiscent of God's provision of water from the rock back in their wilderness wanderings. This would happen for six days, but on the seventh day, some things would change. On the seventh day, they would repeat the, 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 the routine, and yet they would come, and when they got to the altar, they would circle the altar seven times. What's that remind you of? The circling of God's people of the walls of Jericho, symbolizing their entrance into the promised land. And when the priest would come and to begin to pour out the water, a hush would come upon the people. And when it was finished, what often would have been recited is Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 says this, With joy will you draw from the wells of salvation. You see, many scholars believe that it is this moment that Jesus breaks the silence and calls out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see, Jesus is saying that I am the one who brings joy. I am the well of salvation. You see, he offers us satisfaction that will spill out into satisfaction for others. That we become recipients and conduits of grace. That the gospel of the love and life of Jesus comes to us, that it may work in us and through us. As Max Lucado says, that when we drink Christ, we leak life. That's why when, when you're focused on Jesus and you're filled by his Holy Spirit, that people are drawn to you. Now, they may not always recognize, acknowledge it, but there's something that happens, especially when they hit hard times in life, when they have struggles, 
Because they recognize something new. And what they recognize is there is water coming from you. There is life coming from you because Jesus indwells you through his Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says that right here. That, that the explanation for these streams of living waters, the Holy Spirit would come upon his people. Now, it's very interesting that this is very reflective of some of the prophecies made about the temple. From the temple would come these living waters that would flow out into the barren lands and bring life. And so what Jesus is saying, when you come to me, when you experience the life that I alone can offer, you become the temple of God as the Holy Spirit comes and it dwells in you and the life-giving blood of Jesus Christ flows from you and bring life to those around you. That you become the fragrance of heaven, an outpost of the world that is to come. This is what he offers us. But he has some conditions, and they're this. You've got to be thirsty. Now, we don't think very deeply about this fact. You see, thirst is the painful reminder that there is an absence or lack of something that is necessary for life. In this case, namely water. Thirst is a universal human experience. We've all faced an experience to one extent or another, right? Right? So all could identify with what he's talking about physically. But, 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 but the guess is that we all can identify what he's talking about metaphorically as well. Because all of us have this sense that we're missing something we need. Now, now what we think will fill that void may be different. You see, we all have a question, that, which is, what's going to really make me feel content? satisfied, safe, important. What is it? You see, these are the things that we're trying to use to plug in the hole in our hearts. But the reality is, is that hole is God-shaped. It's infinite, and no finite thing can fill it. G.K. Chesterton once said that every time a man knocks on a brothel door, he is really searching for God. What he was saying was simply this, is that was a feeble, sinful attempt to meet a far deeper longing in someone's life. It will never work. It will only bring disaster. It won't bring life. It may for a moment deaden that pain, but it will only leave you aching for more and in the end will rob you of life. If you think the answer to your hunger is a bunch of cotton candy. Life will not go well for you. If you experience the deep pangs of thirst and you think that drawing from the waters of the ocean will satisfy you, they will not. All each of these do will kill you slowly. But Jesus says, what I offer you will not take your life. What I offer you will give you life. You see, what's so amazing in this passage is not only that Jesus freely offers this life to anyone who experiences this need, even those who would seek to ignore his life or take his life, but the very fact that he has the audacity to say that whatever you're thirsting for, I am the answer. If any man is thirsty, may he come to me and drink, and streams of living water will come from him. 
Jesus is claiming what only the infinite can offer. That Jesus is saying to whatever our needs are, he is the answer. But here's the thing, in order to receive it, you must humble yourself, acknowledge your need, and believe all that he says to you. This is aptly depicted in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Civil Chair. In it, the heroine of the story, Jill, encounters a lion in the deep forest. She runs in fear and finds herself exhausted and seemingly dying of thirst. And in the distance, she hears the bubbling of a brook. She makes its way to its banks, and to her horror, she sees that lion on the other side. She freezes. The lion breaks the silence to her and says, If you are thirsty, come and drink. She didn't move. Aslan said to her, Are you not thirsty? She responded, I'm dying of thirst. He responded to her, Then drink. I, I, I could, I, I would, but would you go away? Lewis writes that the lion answered with a low growl, and she realized that this line was going nowhere. She says to him, will you promise not to do anything to me? And Aslan says, I make no such promise. I, I daren't come to drink. I, I can't. Then you will die of thirst, he responds to her. She says to herself, oh dear, I must then go find another stream, to which he says, there is no other stream. Lewis's point is clear. That Jesus invites any and all who feel this longing to come, but only on his terms. That we must come yielding ourselves, relinquishing control, taking him not only as Savior, but also Lord. You see, in this moment, what kept her from him was fear. Fear that he would mess things up. Fear that he may do something to me. Fear that I would lose control. Fear. And Jesus says, I know you feel the pain, which will you recognize that this stream is the only thing that will satisfy? We read that despite her resistance, she unknowingly took a step forward. And eventually will come and will drink of the water and she will say that it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You see, much like Jill, we have our hesitations. We have our fears. We have our things that are keeping us from seeing that in this lion, in this stream, is given everything we're longing for. And in order to draw from its springs that you and I must humble ourselves, you and I must accept our need and to see in him the only thing that can ever truly satisfy. You see, no other stream will do.
Do you feel that thirst in your life right now? You see, this isn't just a problem for unbelievers. It's also for believers as well. Because along the way, we too can fall prey to these same things that keep us from seeing him and keep us from seeing our own need. That we need what he alone can offer. And so what are you thirsting for? What is it right here and right now you think, if I just had this, then my life would be perfect. If I just had this, then I would be okay. If I just had this, then I would be content and I would be satisfied. And let me tell you that those, those streams may calm the pains for a moment. They will never meet that deep thirst and will only lead to the loss of life. But if you would come to believe him and to receive from him what he is offering you right here and right now is that you would experience the wonder and outpouring of the abundance of his love and of his life and of his grace and that what would happen is that you would not merely be a recipient but you would become a conduit of life to those around you. And so are you needing? Well, I want to give you a few takeaways this morning from our text. Some that we referenced and some that we didn't. And while I do that, I want to invite the band up. And I want to give you these things and some things to kind of like summarize what we have talked about this morning into things that we can take away from the teaching of God's word. First is this, is that God can't be hurried and he can't be slowed down. God can't be hurried and he can't be slowed down. You see, throughout this passage is that Jesus is saying his hour has not come. His time has not come. He's not going to let the forces of his family or the people around him push him to go above the pace of his father. And he knows when the moment comes, he seizes it. You see, he understands that God's working in and through time, in and through our lives, is precise. And so God never shows up late. He never misses the mark, and he never blows the opportunity. It's hard waiting. It's hard when you can't see the end game, but trust this, that he is an on-time God. He was so in every fabric of Jesus' ministry, and he will be so in your life as well. Second, Jesus cannot be silenced, but he can be ignored. Despite all of their efforts, Jesus was immortal, and Jesus was um, uh, unsilenceable in God's timing. Nothing could stop him from what he was going to do. He can't be silenced, but he can be ignored. People can, can plug their ears. They can kind of, um, kind of gloss past the facts. They can kind of consume their lives and their hours and their attention with other things. But at the end of the day, you can't silence him. No matter how many clouds come in the sky, guess what? The sun is still shining on the other side. And so don't silence him. Listen to him. Don't ignore him. Listen to him. Third, the deep longings of the human heart can only be satisfied in God. None of the other pursuits of your life, none of the other streams will ever do. Find it in him and him alone. And lastly, you won't truly recognize Jesus until you truly recognize your own need. And so this morning, are you needy? Do you feel that thirst? Do you feel that hunger?
And if so, I want you to know that this offer of a life like you could only imagine is offered to you. It doesn't mean that life's going to get easy. It doesn't mean that all your problems will be solved. But what it does mean is this. In a dry and weary land, you will always have a source of water. You will always have something to sustain your life and to keep your life through until the day when you and I will come face to face with the promised land and the God who got us there. Beloved, this morning, let's get real needy. Wherever you are on your journey with God this morning, may we see how much we desperately need him and to see in that posture what he offers to us. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, there is so much in our lives that keep us from recognizing you. And, and, and the truth be told, we're so hesitant to humble ourselves, to acknowledge the reality acknowledge our deep pain and need. And Father, I pray now through the Holy Spirit that we would come face to face with what's really going on under the surface of our lives. What's really the source of the struggles of our hearts and the longings of our heart and to come to the conclusion as many before us have said that nothing else can satisfy Oh, Lord, in this moment, in this calmness and quiet, as the winds of confusion, division, misinformation swirl around us, in this moment, may we hear your voice. May we hear your offer. And would we receive it and believe it by faith? that we would experience life and leak life to those around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.